Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock, lead pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Windsor, Ontario. On this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. You can find this show on our website at harvestwindsor.ca forward slash leadership now. You can also find it over at the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Go to flf.com and look at their uh, Canadian network there that we have. Uh, we're on the, uh, the the website with them as well as other Canadian pastors like Pastor Nate Wright uh, and the Rebel um, podcast that they do as well. So take a listen over there and uh, make sure to like and subscribe. I'm your host, Chris Yeoman, and today we're going to talk about a critical financial error that many churches and church leaders have fallen into and that we believe is setting them up for long-term failure. So this critical error has to do with churches receiving money from the state. And Aaron, maybe you want to take a moment. Uh, I remember several years ago when this issue first came up in our church and we were talking about it. Uh, Perhaps you could just give a bit of the background for our listeners as to when this issue first surfaced. Right on. Yeah, so I'm calling this podcast Churches Stop Taking Money from the State. And I want to beseech uh, churches and pastors and leaders that are listening to reconsider this as we've had to. So many, many years ago, I don't remember how long back, but going back a little ways, um, we, one of our staff at the time uh, mentioned to me that they wanted to apply for some summer student grants from the Canadian government. The federal government had this... uh, Employment and Social Development Canada grant program. So if you want to hire summer students, I, I think they were kind of help wanted, wanting to help with you know job creation. And I didn't think too much about it. So I'm like, yeah, go ahead and apply. It was, uh, for a church of our size, it was nickels and dimes. It wasn't a great deal of money. But um, we applied for that. And um, this, I think two or three years in a row, I'm not quite sure, how long that went on for, but our children's ministry director at the time, who was, you know, was very competent and very aware of all this stuff, was able to hire a few, maybe two to four, I can't recall exactly, summer students to work in our summer day camp, right? Which is a benefit to our church and a benefit to our community. And uh, in the hustle and bustle of ministry, I, I didn't think too much about that. I was just like, yeah, whatever, you know, money from from the government to hire students, what's what's the uh, downside to that? But then I, I think the Lord just was working in my spirit, and I started to feel uncomfortable with that. So I basically um, had a conversation with our staffer, and I said, "You know what? I'm not I'm not cool with us taking money from the government from the state to fund any sort of ministry." And there wasn't any issues at the time that concerned me as just sort of a sort of a sixth sense that. You know, we live in a country that's increasingly anti-Christian, and I just don't want in any way, shape, or form to be tied to the state in terms of our fiduciary interests. I want to be separate from the state. So we just stopped applying for it. And um, interestingly, I think a couple of years after we stopped taking this grant money to pay summer students, lo and behold, the... Government came out with these rules, these ideological rules, and they were a little more complicated than this. But essentially, they said, you know, if you can't agree with the government's stance on abortion and same-sex marriage and this kind of stuff, you you don't qualify. Well, all of a sudden, all kinds of Christian ministries, especially mm-hmm. camps, yep. 
that rely upon this to pay lots of staff were skunked. And there was kind of some debate back and forth uh, at the time. Well, even a couple of years ago, Global News reported that about 400 organizations that applied for these grants were denied funding because they um, you know, didn't agree with the government's stance on family planning, sex education, abortion-related issues. So a lot of them were pretty skunked. And I was just thankful that we weren't, first of all, we didn't really need the money. We weren't reliant upon it. And secondly, that, um, you know, we had the foresight to not take money from the state because there's often strings attached, if not in year one, two or three, maybe in year, you know, four or five or six. So that's kind of a little bit of a lesson that we learn from, uh, you know, uh, our read on what was going on in the culture with regard to churches taking money from the state. Yeah. And now this past year uh, with COVID and all the shutdowns and whatever else, I know that there's been, you watch the newscast and they're giving money left, right and center yeah, to anyone sure. and everyone. Yeah. Uh, and churches have ended up on that list yeah. uh, as I think getting something called the Canadian emergency wage subsidy. Yeah. Lots of um, them, probably a couple thousand. And so that is concerning to you. Can you explain maybe why that is concerning to you? Okay. So I want to say, first of all, because I have a heart for people, if you're listening and you're like, "Uh uh-oh, he's confronting me, he's targeting me, we took took that money. Believe me, I'm not. not doing that. That's between you and God. But I think it's unwise to do that, to take funds from the state. And I'm going to kind of give several reasons why. But I, I know that many, 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 many churches many churches, again, to the tune of probably close to 2,000, if not more, took money from the state. And, you know, the names of the churches are online. People have sent me links and you just kind of do a little, just type in the word church and you get all kinds of Mm -hmm. um, different churches that come up. You could probably do the same with temple, mosque, synagogue, whatever, right? So basically um, uh, what's going on right now is because the state has uh, forcibly closed churches three times and businesses, businesses who pay into the tax base, churches that don't pay into the tax base, we'll talk about that, have been able to apply for wage subsidies to pay their staff. And within days, if not weeks, many churches dove right into that and took, um, you know, offer free money from the Mm -hmm. state to fund their uh, ministries. Now, an ethical argument could be made that if a state forcibly closes a church, then yeah, they owe they owe the church money. So for example, over in, uh, I think it's Scotland, there's a case that just came out where, at least it's in the British Isles, I can't remember if it's Scotland exactly, but it just came out t- today or yesterday that there's a... Um, a lawsuit, the government has to pay back or the city has to pay a church back, I think like $35,000 because they forcibly closed down one of their Bible conferences and they had a speaker coming from the States and all that to, Mm -hmm. so the church lost money. So an argument could be made ethically that, you know, hey, you're going to close our church. we, We may or may not take a hit financially. You owe us money. I just think that's still a critical error. So I understand it from a pragmatic perspective, but I think that you're putting yourself necessarily um, uh, in a position where you might become beholden to the government in you know several different areas that 
would be of grave concern to faithful churches. So if you were to like pull out four or five, or maybe I don't know how many have of the, the top reasons that taking state funds is a bad idea, what would they be? Yeah. So I want to talk about this a little bit later on, but the, uh, a, a registered Canadian Christian church, as well as a mosque, synagogue, etc., they are exempt from paying municipal property taxes if they own the facilities within which they worship. It doesn't apply if you're renting space. Hmm. You can also apply for some refunds if you're buying products, materials, whatever it might be, goods and services, and you're paying HST, you can apply for a portion of that back. Clergy can, um, bona fide clergy can apply are eligible for the clergy residence deduction on their income. So like a portion of your income that's considered the fair market value of your house or your apartment or whatever um, can be, can have various tax breaks associated mm-hmm. with that. And, um, but, but the point I want to make in giving those illustrations is that in, in any meaningful way, churches don't pay into the tax base like businesses do. Mm-hmm. So there's this interesting dynamic where you're not really meaningfully paying into the tax base, but now you're taking subsidies and grants from the government. Um, It is true that charities, including churches, save taxpayers ton loads of money every year. So the Cardis Group, you can find research on the four C's, the Canadian Council of um, Christian Charities website, uh, they studied congregations and discovered that for every dollar a, a church spends in a community, they actually save, they, they provide $4.50 worth of services. So just think about this. If if a church spends a million dollars on employing people, goods and services, uh, addiction ministries, marital helps, all that kind of stuff, let's say they spend a million dollars over a year, 10 years or whatever your budget might be. They're actually providing services to the community to the tune of $4.5 million. So if you said, hey, let's just let's take all the church's tax status away and every dollar that they therefore wouldn't be able to spend on ministry or the community because they're paying taxes to the government, the taxpayer would be saddled if you wanted to provide those services with an extra $4.50 for every dollar you've taken from the church. So Mm -hmm. we don't meaningfully contribute to the tax base. But we do help taxpayers to pay less taxes, which is interesting. And this is why it's actually in the best interest of people from, you know, atheists, non-church people, et cetera, to advocate for charitable status on churches, mosques, synagogues, and the like. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, my, my concern, so there's, there's several concerns about taking money from the state and especially this um, – wage subsidy stuff. So I, I brought along four here in my notes that, that I, I hope will help. So these could be, let me, let me just be real precise here. These could be matters of actual or real compromise, or they could be matters of just potential compromise. So a, an issue might arise in the future that potentially compromises your ministry and worship, or they might just be perceived compromise. This makes you look bad, mm-hmm. right? So my, my, kind of four arguments fall into one or all of those categories. So the first one is fiduciary conflicts of interest. So in, in any relationship, uh, 
that is arm's length, there has to be like a separation of powers or a separation of finances. So for example, if you're on a church board and you're a paid staff member, you shouldn't be voting on your own salary, voting on your own money or weighing in on things that you could personally financially benefit from. Right. Even if you're a super good guy, um, you maintain what we call that arm's length uh, distance from the perception that your decisions are somehow influenced by your paycheck. Does that make sense? Yep. That's, yeah. So yeah, that's real clear. So we, we have policies in place for that in our church. And when staff people, so salaried church leaders uh, like you and I, if we were to put ourselves in a position where we're receiving money from the state to actually pay our wages, mm-hmm. well, you're, you're not in an arm's length relationship anymore. Um, and what happens is when, when and should the values of the church and the state clash or collide, churches that are reliant upon the state, well, you're not really defending your own best interests. You're, you, you may be, or at least perceived to be concerned about protecting your own butt from loss of wages or income. So why would you put yourself in a position where uh, uh, the state, which at any point in time might be your friend or your enemy, is paying your wages? So there's a lack of proper arm's length fiduciary relationship between churches and states to take take this kind of money. And that makes it obviously super complicated then because every time you're making a decision, you have to factor in, wait, if I you know, disobey the government in this regard, then they might take my wage. And now mm-hmm. you're making decisions not based on principle, based on pr- very pragmatic. Yeah, I mean, people are right? people. I, I've, I know for, for a fact, a hundred percent that there's some churches that have chosen to comply because they feel coerced. So this is kind of my second argument, which is if you don't take money from the state, you're sort of free from the coercion that they may try to levy against you. So some church leaders, and I believe this to be true, have abided by the state closure mandates because they actually believe they should and it's right and et cetera. But others have done so contrary to their own consciences and convictions and have said, you know, we feel shamed or guilty about it. And mm-hmm. the, the what the government uses to coerce people is primarily money, right? So we're going to take your money. We're going to fine you and ticket you and charge you exorbitant amounts of money. Or, you know, insurance companies come knock and we're like, yeah, you broke the rules. We're going to take your insurance away. Well, then where's your liability, right? So it's it's financial coercion. Finance is the primary means in a society like ours that people use to coerce others mm-hmm. when the world rises and falls on money. So that being the case, why would you add yet another fear of losing your wages to this mixture of financial threats that the world throws at the churches and they're trying to co- coerce them. So I, I think that you're, not only are you not at an arm's length relationship in terms of fiduciary interests, but you're, you are putting yourself in a place where you can be coerced and threatened by the state in a greater way than if you are, um, you know, free and clear from them. Right. So my third, my third concern is, um, there's been a lot of talk about public witness, right? And some have suggested that, you know, it's a bad public witness to keep your church open. Well, 
could be a bad public witness to take taxpayer dollars too from a tax base that doesn't share your views and that may criticize you as follows. So for example, I'm a Christian, I pay into the tax system, but I don't really want my tax dollars going to paying the wages of a Muslim cleric or a Unitarian preacher. I mean, they're free to do their thing, but I don't want to fund it. Mm -hmm. And in the same way, why would a non-Christian not be upset if they found out, oh, some of my tax dollars are going to pay the wages of pastor such and such down the street. I don't even agree with their faith. I don't agree with their religion. I'm not kind of into that. So I, I think you could get some blowback from the community by taking money from taxpayers. And then kind of the biggie for me is the more indebted you are to the state, the less freedom you have to fight the culture wars. Hmm. So there's been talk of rolling lockdowns, repeated lockdowns. Whenever new viruses come, there's been talk of maybe, hey, maybe we should do lockdowns once a year to stop climate change, to reduce carbon emissions. And then we have Bill C-10 desiring to censor churches. And this is especially dangerous for churches that want to be faithful, but are relying heavily upon the internet to get their message out. The government wants to censor you know, internet content and regulate free speech, essentially. So these are things going on in the culture wars. Well, any knowledgeable Christian that's in tune with the culture wars that we're fighting knows that these issues are going to be directed towards faithful, biblical, Christ-loving churches. And we can be targeted for that because we're not into the radical sexual agenda. We're not into the muzzling of free speech. We're not into the stripping of liberties from people. We're not into that kind of stuff. We fought for these things historically. So um, it's becoming increasingly difficult. I think we used to say we're like a post-Christian culture. I think we're now an anti-Christian culture. Hmm. So we were kind of a Christianized culture. Then then we became a post-Christian culture. Now it's like there's this anti-Christian sentiment. So, you know, I get some random email from some anti-hate group today and I can tell the questions they're asking me. They're, they're wanting to pin me to a wall. It's so obvious. So they're, they're sort of, a lot of these groups are out for blood and they're going to target the churches. Well, the more self-reliant churches can be uh, in terms of maintaining their autonomy, the better. And that includes financial autonomy from the state uh, who are not their friends and who will potentially co coerce their ability to stand for some of these righteous issues that we're pretty uh, worked up about. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of um, complexities to some of this conversation. Uh, one question that even just came to my mind is, is there a difference between taking the uh, grants from the government and a wage subsidy and taking EI? Uh, can a Christian pastor take EI? Did they I think they pay into it, as I understand. Yeah, we would. So. Well, you're paying into it. It's just an it's just an insurance policy. I mean, you're required to do that. Um, so you're just prepaying for the potential of being out of work. So okay. that's different, though, than when you're not even paying into a tax base and then you're receiving wage subsidies from it. So in the same way that if I pay a premium on my life insurance or house insurance, if there's a problem, I expect to be reimbursed. Mm -hmm. So I'm paying into EI, expect to be reimbursed. And that's across the board, right? Um, for people that are quote unquote employed. Mm -hmm. um, but when you're taking grants, you're taking wage subsidies um, from a state where you don't even meaningfully contribute to the tax base. Uh, that's a problem. 
and um, it should be avoided. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's chat a bit about church tax exemptions. And you mentioned a few that maybe some of our listeners, if they're not the church treasurer, they wouldn't have known, hey, there's an HST rebate or yeah. that there's, uh, we don't pay property tax, but there's also income tax exemptions, or um, I should say, we get te- tax exemptions in terms of we have the ability to hand out charitable givings receipts and whatnot. Yeah. Um, some pastors we've heard say, that's a privilege. That's a privilege that the church has. How would you respond to that? Maybe you can flesh that out a bit. So historically, Christian churches, and by extension, you know, in a fairsy squaresy world, all other charities have what's called tax exempt status, charitable status. We, we often refer to it as in Canada. And you register as a charity, you fill out an application, you kind of show that you're doing benevolent work in the community, you register as a charity, and now you get certain, people would call them tax breaks, and then you can also give out tax receipts, so then your people can get tax breaks and their income tax for donating to a charity. And But I think we've fallen into a trap. So there's there's increasingly a number of Christian churches that are like, yeah, we're not we're not applying for tax status, tax free status, because that puts us under the authority of the state. I'm going to actually argue that the opposite is true. And this is why tax exempt status needs to be defended. But just to kind of explain it a little bit. So when you own, so we, we rented as a church for eight years when we were kind of a church plant before we had our own facilities. So we would just pay rent and we didn't get any tax breaks. But when you purchase land and you start to worship on that land in a building, then you can apply for tax exemptions from municipal property taxes. And then, of course, there's, as I mentioned earlier, there's, um, you know, if you pay X, X percent in HST on whatever cleaning products, a couple times a year, you can apply to get a portion of that back. You still pay some, but you get a portion of that back. And so... When we think about this tax exempt status, I want to kind of address the common mindset. And the mindset that many have is that tax exempt status is like a privilege or a gift given by the state that we need to thank the state for. And in addition to that, we definitely don't want to lose that because it'll cost us and our people a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's that's a myth. Um, it's a myth that tax exemptions are a gift from the state. To the contrary, Taxation is actually the state's claim to having authority over the person, the individual, or the organization they're taxing. So much like a an embassy in a foreign country has autonomy, right? It, it will. You, uh, an embassy could get in trouble for breaks the criminal laws of a land, starts murdering people. But so they are under the foreign government in terms of criminal law. I would think in most places, just as we would happily say we're under the authority of the state in terms of criminal law, but the, the state is not our boss. They're not our overlords. Mm-hmm. And the reason why the, the Christian church isn't taxed is because churches are Christ's embassy and clergymen are ambassadors of Christ's embassy. And so that's why they also have certain tax exemptions, not tax breaks, but tax exemptions. So tax exemptions are really to be understood as a form of immunity from state tyranny, state authority, and a declaration that our our true Lord and King is Jesus Christ. So even when we tithe to the ministry of our church, in a sense, we're saying, yeah, we're going to pay taxes to our true King. 
who is the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to allow the money that he's given to us to be used for his purposes. Now, in the U.S., um, people might say, okay, well, show me the show me that in the books. It's not in the books in Canada. I'm talking about Western culture as a whole. In the U.S., it's more clear because they have the First Amendment, which insists on kind of a separation of church and state. But I wanted, I wanted to kind of read a quote from uh, a Catholic uh, cleric, Father Raymond D'Souza, He's a, the editor-in-chief of Convivium, and he he wrote this interesting article called Why Churches Don't Pay Taxes. So he kind of grounds this in history. And one of his comments is, and I quote, there are limits, though, as to what the state can tax because there are limits to the state's authority. So previous to that, he's talking about taxation as a claim to authority over another. He says, until taxes on everything became standard practice, which it seems to be the case today, Taxation was linked to the territorial authority of the sovereign. That's why taxes were levied at borders and duties were charged on imported goods. He goes on to say, it was not just a matter of practical tax collection, emphasized that upon entering the territory of a sovereign, the authority of that sovereignty was expressed in taxation. Empires levied imperial taxes in their provinces. Hence, Jesus advised rendering to Caesar, not to the Galilean town council. Interesting. So he he's just kind of pointing out this forgotten fact that if the church permits itself to be taxed by the state, what we're actually agreeing to is that we're under the authority of the state, the sovereignty of the state, and therefore we are beholden to its rules and regulations. I'm not prepared to do that. In Romans thirteen four, the church is a job, or the state has a job description: is to wield the sword. It's not authority over the worship and ministry of the church. It's authority over what we would call criminal justice or public justice, but it doesn't have authority over how we worship, how we celebrate the sacraments, how many people we allow in. It has taken that authority upon itself, but we're pushing back. We're saying, no, you don't have authority over that. Um, so. Some have suggested, well, yeah, but you submit to the state as a citizen. Okay, yeah, I do. You know, because there's not necessarily because it's a sin to break every law that's out there, because not all these laws are just or moral in nature. I, I do them for pragmatic reasons. But on on principle, the church is not obligated to surrender authority over her worship or ministry to any governing official outside of public justice, except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. So basically what we're saying is we have immunity from the state's interference in the life of our church. Interesting that it's kind of reversed from what you would expect because people saying, if I pay taxes, well, then I'm kind of like everybody else and I I shouldn't be... uh, you know, I shouldn't, I, I don't have a special status, but that special status is exactly what you need to be the embassy, so to speak. People have actually said, because um, we have compared ourselves to small businesses or what not, not, not small businesses, big box stores, I should say, mm-hmm. who were wide open when we were closed. And, you know, we had this sign out front that kind of went all over the internet. You know, if this is a big box store, you could all come in because we're trying to make the point that there's some discrepancies here in the rulings. Um. But at the same time, we, we actually don't want people to think we're a big box store or a small business. We're the church. So people might say, well, you're demanding special treatment. You bet we are because we're an embassy. We're Christ's embassy. And again, by extension, that 
is afforded to other charities. But we have a vital role to play in society. The church is more than essential. It's actually in a category of its own above and beyond even essential services. And again, because we are a spiritual community, we see that we're living in a dark world and we're obviously concerned about all the you know spiritual wars being levied against the church and the devil duping churches into being closed and how that works quite well for his agenda, et cetera. So we have that. But I'm just sort of talking here from like a common sense, historical sort of cultural awareness perspective that um, the church has a certain immunity and it needs to maintain that immunity from state interference. I, I haven't studied the history of this, but I have a suspicion that even sex, section 176 of the criminal code which forbids sort of the arrest, detention of clergy while he's performing his duties, probably is rooted in that historical understanding as well, that there's like, this guy's like an ambassador. What are you doing ticketing him or charging him or arresting him when he's trying to officiate his duties as Christ's ambassador? So there's this this um, historic cultural memory, I'll call it, that the church is separate from the state. And unfortunately, that seems to be going away pretty quick and in large part, it's because clergymen don't understand their servant thought through this, and they're actually teaching their people that their churches are to be submissive in all areas to state authority. Hmm. Now, we've talked a little bit already about, uh, and that Cardis group findings saying that the church is beneficial, and so that the tax-exempt status is actually a good thing you're giving churches churches bless their communities is there a sense in which this whole separation of church and state also blesses the state yeah i mean that that article that i referred to talks about all kinds of tangible benefits to the um the community that saves the state time um providing recreational space um capital investments the running of day schools, day camps, nurseries, youth ministries, um, derong people into communities. People often say, okay, especially if they're Christian, like I want to move to city A, but is there a good church there? So, you know, in our church, when people have moved to other provinces, they're like, hey, Aaron, or hey, Chris, where do you know of any good churches in that area? And that's a factor for where people locate. So there's an economic benefit to the community when people want to be, let's say, at Harvest Windsor. They moved to Windsor or moved to South Windsor because I want to be at Harvest Windsor. So Windsor can thank us for the increased population. Yeah. <laughs> this is why house prices are skyrocketing. It all, it it's all, Harvest it's all Windsor. Coming together. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and then suicide prevention, um, you know, addiction recovery, community initiatives, you know, rental properties that you make available to people in desperate circumstances. And then all of our volunteer time, right? Our people are helping out with hospitals and packages. And I think we're putting together some face shields or something. One of, the, one of our people said for, for the hospital at their request. So there's all, all of that, um, uh, you know, benefit. But here's a big one that, that sometimes just isn't, isn't thought about. Uh, the state is actually protecting itself from the church, potentially abusing its authority by giving us tax-exempt status. So you ask, how so? Um, so we, we need to think of it this way. So we have, we have, I'll just call it a job description. So this, the church has a job description and the state has a job description. And there's other jobs. The family has a job description. The husband has a job description. The, 
the master has a job description, etc. So everybody has job descriptions, but we're just talking about church and state. And um, the, the, the primary biblical responsibility of the state, as I've mentioned many times, is to wield the sword, to bear the sword, to oversee public justice, to punish the evildoer and reward the good in Romans 13. That's their fundamental job description, which has been which is mushroomed out of control. You know, big government's a big problem. But their fundamental job description is public justice. Our job description is to preach the gospel, to represent the purposes of Christ, to, you know, take the gospel into all the world, to heal the sick, the dying, the lame, to, you know, be a blessing to the lost and so forth and so on. And um, what we're not supposed to be doing as a church is getting involved in partisan politics. We can get in politics in the sense, get involved in politics in the sense we can hold the church, the, the state accountable for matters of morality and justice. So we can put our hand up and say, yeah, we're not into this abortion thing, or we think same sex marriage is, is wrong for these reasons, et cetera. So we can weigh into, um, moral issues or justice issues and sort of be a conscience to the nation. But it's not our job to arrest people, put people in prison, you know, execute people, fine people, charge people. That's not the job description of the church. We don't wield the sword. The state does. And what tax tax exemption does is it kind of keeps the church in its place. It's like, yeah, you're not paying into state coffers. So don't be getting involved in partisan politics. Now, this is recognized even in through organizations like the Canadian Council for Christian Charities, where they basically say churches and charities should avoid partisan political endorsements. They can get involved in politics. So if we're going to have, let's say, an elections coming up and we have people running for office, we can have them all come into our church or something and speak to our people. But we can't just have one and exclude the rest. Otherwise, we'd be guilty of being partisan. Now I I can do that as an individual. I can I can speak out against a party that I think's lost its mind or whatever. I can do that. I can use my Twitter, my Facebook, my my words, but in inside the walls of the church or on like church media, we have to be careful about that. So um if the church, if the state comes up with a brainwave and says, "Okay, we're going to punish churches, we're going to take away their tax exemption," well, then then you basically shot yourself in the foot because what what could happen then is churches would be like, "Okay, then we're going full blown partisan. We're going to run our own candidates. We're going to interfere with partisan politics. We're going to only promote certain people." And the church is a powerful influence in people's lives, right? Mm-hmm. So, what tax exemption does is it protects the state from the church starting to act like the state and tax exemption also protects the church from the state starting to act like the church. So see how that Mm -hmm. works. It's a symbiotic relationship. There's a mutuality there. We don't want the church to become the state. We don't want the state to become the church. We want there to be an influence from the state uh, over the church in matters of criminal justice and we definitely want there to be a moral, spiritual, ethical influence and theological influence from the church to the state. But we want to maintain that separation of entities and and not confuse people. Oh, well, the state is my church. Or the church is my state. So from a practical standpoint, let's say a church or a, a Christian charity is taking a lot of government money in terms of grants and stuff right now. Uh from a just maybe a financial coaching standpoint, what would you recommend as a way forward to kind of get themselves out of that spot? 
Well, if you're taking extreme amounts of money, you might have to wean yourself off. But the principal part of me would just say, stop it. If the Lord has not provided the money through his people to pay the wages of your people or pay for your day camp staff, then that's not a ministry you should be running or your people need to learn to tithe and give and etc. So in principle, stop doing it. Stop taking money from the state. You don't benefit from it. The state doesn't benefit from it. It, can, it just creates all these potential or actual or perceived complications. So if you're taking you know, money and it's one quarter of 1% of your annual revenue, believe me, you can get by without that. Just stop taking it now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have you know, taken money in the past and, uh, you know, you don't want to take it in the future, write a policy or make sure he's kind of knowledgeable as to why you're not doing that. And then just encourage God's people to give to the work of the ministry. I mean, in theory, the less money we take from the state, uh, I mean, the state probably will spend it on other things, but in theory, the less money we take from the state, the less the state has to tax people, the more the people have to give back to their ministry and so oh. forth anyway, right? <laughs> That's an ideal so, look, <laughs> look at things. So what we always need to understand is that anytime, anytime we take money from the state, what we're actually doing is take, taking money from other taxpayers because 100% of state money is taxpayer money, 100% of it. So... In principle, the less money this this speaks to issues of socialism, right? Where people think that, oh, just let the let the let Big Brother take care of me and pay my wages and on and on and on. Yeah, but that's not them doing it. You're just taking money from your neighbors and it's just coming to you in a, a government check. Mm-hmm. A roundabout way. Now, I, I think I may have asked you this before. We've talked about churches taking money from the government. Do you have any concerns for individuals taking money from the government? So, you know, you get, I'm just thinking, okay, a Christian parent gets the Canada child benefit deposited into their bank each month. Is that a claim to authority over their children or not really? What just, I know I'm kind of throwing that that at you, but what, what are your initial thoughts? Well, I don't, it's not a claim to having authority over you per se, but it, it can also put you in a position of compromise. For example, I, I met a family many years ago that had, had many kids but refused to take that money from the state. And then they kind of changed their mind and they decided to catch up and they got a, quite a sizable amount. Good for them. If you're paying into the system, okay, if you're paying into the system and you know there's this pool of money that's being um, – doled out to people in special need or circumstances, okay, fine. Um, I would prefer that that's not how culture worked. I'd prefer that we had a smaller state government that just kind of did its basic job and left more money in the hands of people. I think that this sense of, you know, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat is often under preached. So we, we want to trust in the Lord to provide and we want to, want to work for our bread Um, so I don't want to be, I don't want to be maybe as dogmatic about that as I am about the state providing money to churches. Cause I think there's a, you know, real spiritual conflict there, Mm -hmm. but I think people need to at least raise that question and, um, you know, ask themselves, okay, if I do take X number of dollars from the state for my children, is that potentially putting me in a place of compromise for schooling choices? 
I don't think that is right now. I don't think it really matters. Mm -hmm. If the state state wanted to come for your kids, they're going to come for your kids, Mm -hmm. whether you take that or not. Um, they're probably not even going to consider that, but at, at least on principle, it, it puts you in a place where you're maybe feeling a little more free, you know, to provide for and to care for and to sort of unhitch yourself from reliance upon the state. I think the critical thing there is the issue of reliance, right? So if you're relying upon a state to provide for your family, I'm going to have another kid because I'm going to get more money from the state or, oh yeah, we can afford that vacation because I'm going to get money from the state. And you start to set up your lifestyle in such a way that you're dependent upon or reliant upon the state to provide for you. I think that's a dangerous way to live because who knows what's going to happen, right? To the Mm -hmm. economy. And um, again, if you ever caught wind that they were trying to manipulate you or somehow control your your family or speak into how you should raise your kids because you've taken state funds, I think it'd be time to run from that as well. Hmm. Well, that's helpful. Thanks for your financial uh, financial advice. <laughs> for our American friends specifically who might not be in tune with this story, can you catch us up to speed a little bit about what happened to Tim Stevens before we go? Yeah. So... Canada has uh, 10 provinces and three territories. There used to be two territories when we were kids, but they divided one into two. So we have 10 provinces and two territories. So every, all the stu- crazy stuff that's going on in Canada right now is, is or primarily is a provincial issue. So different provinces have different ways of responding to lockdowns and protocol, health protocols and so forth. So we now have in the province of Alberta, so that would be like three provinces over from us, in the province of Alberta, we've now had two pastors, Pastor James Coates and Pastor Tim Stevens, one of whom pastors close to Edmonton and one who, who pastors co- close to Calgary, so the two big cities in, in Alberta, who've been arrested for violating the Alberta Health Services rules and protocols. So Pastor Tim, and I've gotten to know these guys a little bit um, through podcasts and just a little bit of networking we've, we've had. I've been on a show with... I think a couple shows with Tim. So he's Pat, he used to pastor in Windsor and um, moved out there and is pastoring a church. And he's, he was arrested for like a day for opening his church a few, maybe a month or so ago. And then they came to his house and arrested him again, you know, in front of his kids and family. It was a pretty traumatic event. There's video footage of it online. So he's back in jail in the, in the remand center for pastoring his church. And of course, it it bothers me deeply, but a lot of people are like, well, he deserved it. He broke the law. And what men like him and us are trying to emphasize is that we're the reason why we're not prepared to abide by these rules. First of all, because I think a lot of them are ridiculous and even the public knows that mm-hmm. um, the, 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 the people that rule us, they used to govern us, but now they've decided to rule us. They're breaking the rules all the time, like exorbitantly having, you know, participating in gatherings with thousands of people, but, you know, locking us up. Um, he's pushing back because he doesn't, he does not want to give the state authority over the ministry and worship of his church, period. He's just, no, you don't have authority over the worship and ministry of the church. So this is why we need to talk about this over and over and over again until we sound like a broken record, just replaying the same line. Every Christian in Canada needs to decide Does the state, it's very simple. All of the stuff we've gone through the last year is very simple. Does the church have authority over the ministry and worship of the state, of the church? Mm -hmm. Yes or no. Does the state have authority over the ministry and worship of the church? Yes 
or no? That's a fundamental question. It's more fundamental than what are the case numbers? How nasty is the virus? How many people have died? What are obligations to our neighbor? On and on and on. Mm -hmm. Does the state have authority over the ministry and worship of the church? Men like Tim, myself, Jacob Rehm, Nate Wright, Joe Boot, and of course, James Coates, we say no. You do not have authority over the ministry and worship of the church, and we will never give you that authority. We don't want to be fined. We don't want to be taken away from our families, but we won't give that. So many churches have gone underground. They've gone into hiding. Some churches have met in secluded places. Um, some churches have met in homes built, you know, apartment buildings, wherever they might be. And basically, Tim's been hunted down and arrested um, for breaking the, the rules again. Um, nobody's been arrested in Ontario for doing that. We've just had these massive fines. I, I think their fines out there might be quite a bit less than ours, but they're more trigger happy to throw the cuffs on. Here, our fines are very hefty and very severe, but nobody's been arrested yet. They've decided to just you know lock churches up and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so as we're recording this podcast, to my knowledge, he's still sitting in the remand center. He is, yeah. And, uh, so let's pray for his w- wife, Raquel, and... They have a a quiver full of children. So pray for them, younger children, and um, pray that he would be a faithful witness. You know, Chris, I got to say, too, that this has all been really hard on us um, in a very deep way, especially those of us who are on the front lines. And, you know, while we want to be strong and courageous for our people, um, if Tim's anything like me or others, it, it is hard. It's hard on a on a very deep level. And so we appreciate the prayers of the people that follow our lead in this regard. And we appreciate your advocacy as well. Um, it's a great reminder, though, that this world is not our home. Mm-hmm. We're just passing through. And uh, Christians before us have gone through a lot worse circumstances and have remained faithful even unto death. So we want to be faithful in our generation. That doesn't mean that we're going to cast our pearls before swine, that we're going to, you know, hey, arrest me, arrest me, take me down, find me again. You know, it's, we, we're always weighing out, you know, when to um, jump on the battlefield, when to retreat, what does the Lord sort of have for us in that? You know, when do we hand the keys over to our building? When do we, you know, keep the keys because it's God's property and we don't want the state to have? We're always weighing these things out. And so there's a call for decision, uh, a wisdom and discernment there, and different churches arrive at different conclusions. But um, we're not judgmental on that at all. We we're thankful for every pastor, every church, every church board that has taken a strong stance, and and we're going to just pray that justice would be served through, um, you know, Tim Stevens' bold witness for Christ. So in the comments uh, or the links that we'll add to the show, we'll give you some instructions. If you want to write letters to Tim, you can send them there uh, and maybe even some social media accounts to follow, but just do be keeping them in prayer. Just also a brief reminder that we are now heard on the CJXC radio station, Canada's constant Christian companion. And that's on 11 a.m. on Tuesdays and rebroadcast again, 11 p.m. on Thursdays. And also, as you know, we're on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, so you can download their app and it'll send you notifications when our podcast and other podcasts like ours are uh, distributed. So make sure to uh, go download that app, subscribe to our podcast, like it, rate it, do all the good stuff, share it out there, and then make sure most importantly to tune in next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Roberts.